0: Our next speaker is a freshman member of the United States House of Representatives. In fact, he is among those described by the New York Times as a maverick. I'm sorry that I'm not able to repeat the way speaker Newt Gingrich describes him. Born in Atlanta, four years before our society was launched by Robert Welch, he grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which is still his home, and by the way, the place I was born. A graduate of the University of Alabama, He went on to earn a law degree from the University of Florida. Times must really be changing when we invite lawyers to speak at these
1: dinners.
0: (laughs) Involved as a host of professional, civic, and religious activities, he sought and gained election to the House of Representatives in 1994. He is the first Republican to represent Florida's first and finest congressional district since the horrible period known as Reconstruction. I'm very pleased to tell you that he is my Congressman and my good friend. He's become a hero to many throughout this nation as an author of bills to get us out of the United Nations and to abolish... (laughs) And to abolish the Department of Education. We're delighted to have him with us tonight. Would you please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Congressman Joe Scarborough.
1: Thank you very much. Times have changed uh, now that you have a lawyer uh, speaking for the the JBS. I always said in the campaign, though, when my opponents would attack me for being a lawyer, I'd say. Well, don't don't take it out on me too hard. I wasn't that much. I wasn't that good of a lawyer. I actually was more interested in keeping tabs on Bill Clinton. And and actually, when people asked me why I ran for office, I could always narrow it down to two words, and those two words were Bill Clinton. I saw what was saw what was going on, and had not really planned to get into public service anytime uh, in the near future after I got out of law school. And quite frankly. Uh, Bill Clinton was a wake-up call, not only for me, but for 73 other freshman Republicans that got elected in 1994 and who were interested in changing this country back to what it was. Now Jack's given me strict instructions uh, to speak. He's allowed me to speak for 29 minutes and 59 seconds. (laughs) So I'm gonna have to blaze through this very quickly. I found out early on that I have so much to talk about and I get so excited that sometimes I run on. In fact, a good friend of mine in one of the first speeches I gave introduced me. I got up and talked, thought I gave a great speech. I sat down and everybody applauded and he got up and he said, you know, I could listen to Congressman Scarborough speak all night and for a second there I thought I was going to have to. So, Realizing that brevity is the soul of wit, I will uh, try to keep it under 30 minutes. And uh, as I was coming in, I was uh, asked, why did I come here? Why did I come to California? Uh, When I could have stayed home with my family on one of the few weekends uh, that I I could spend with my family. And I, I said, first of all, because Walt and Christina Ruckel have been such good friends of mine, and this is so important to them, and it's such an important organization for, to them that I wanted to come out and show my, my support. But I've got to tell you, secondly, uh, I came out because I wanted to give you an update on what's really happening in Congress, what's happening in this country of ours, and what's happening to our Constitution. And uh, we have very active JBS uh, group in my area. In fact, they're constantly needling me, constantly poking me. I mean, you know, if if Paul... You know, the Apostle Paul talked about the thorn in his side, and scholars and theologians through the centuries have tried to figure out what that thorn was in Paul's side. Well, They're not going to have to study too long to figure out what the thorn has been in Congress's side for many decades, and that's been JBS, and for good reason. For the past 40 years, we've had a Congress that has ignored the Constitution. Since 1937, we've had a Supreme Court that's turned a blind eye to the Constitution. We've run up a $5 trillion debt we're passing it on to our children and we have political leaders that have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever and it absolutely astounds me and I know some people are distressed because they look at the evening news and they listen to what Dan Rather says and they think that people out there are actually believing that that somehow this revolution or really a counter-revolution to what happened back in 1933 and a counter-revolution to what happened in 1965 Many fear now that this revolution has hit a brick wall and is dying because Bill Clinton is better at demagoguing than Newt Gingrich. Let me say this. As Mark Twain said, reports of the revolution's death is greatly exaggerated. The fact of the matter is, we still have 73 freshman Republican members up there. Overwhelming majority of which got elected by preaching the same message that I preached in my district. That's the message of James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and the message of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. (laughs) And despite what Bill Clinton says, it's the message that mainstream America wants to hear. And it's about time. You know, I have... Been very concerned at times that the agenda of national parties are going to get in the way once again of what we need to do in Washington, D.C. But then I talk to my freshman class members. I find out that's not the case. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republican, every media outlet has been trying to figure out why this class has been so independent from its leadership. And there's a good reason. And it goes back to what I was talking about before, and, and I found out the first day I got to Congress, I don't know how many of you know who Jack Metcalf is, Jack is a congressman from Washington State. Now, let me tell you something, Jack and I couldn't be further apart uh, geographically. We are from the opposite sides of the continent, we're, I'm one of the, I'm the youngest freshman, Jack is the oldest freshman. I listen to music that Jack wouldn't listen to in his worst nightmare. <laughs> I am from a completely different culture. I grew up listening to the Beatles and going to movies that Jack wouldn't let let uh, his mother see. I mean we are from different worlds and yet when I talked to Jack Metcalf we were sitting around the first day we had reception and here we were from two different cultures, two different parts of the country. I said, Jack, what did you run, run on? What was your platform? And I expected to hear the same old stuff that the National Republican Party passed out to all the candidates. And all the candidates that listened to those tapes lost. The rest of us <laughs> won. And Jack told me, <laughs> Jack told me, I talked about James Madison, I talked about Thomas Jefferson and I talked about the 10th Amendment. And it absolutely stunned me. He said the exact thing that I was saying. There was no plan by the Republican Party to do this. There's no plan anywhere. Let me tell you the revolution that has taken place is taking place underground. We don't need Dan Rather anymore to convey our message. We've got the fax machine. We've got the fax machine, we've got the internet, we've got talk radio, we've got all these other forces that are causing a decentralization of information in this society. And with that decentralization, it's empowering communities. You know, we were set up to be a nation of communities and not a nation of bureaucracies. That's why I quoted James Madison. You know, Madison wrote while he was framing the Constitution, we have staked the entire future of the American civilization not upon the power of government, but upon the capacity of each of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, and to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Now. We talked about Madison, we talked about Jefferson, the government that governs least governs best. We talked about the 10th Amendment. All powers not specifically given to the federal government in the Constitution are reserved to states and citizens. And guess what? We were called extremists. (laughs) And guess what? We said, and I said specifically, and And what can you say to this? I said, if you don't like it, Don't take it out on me, because this isn't what I'm saying. Take it out on James Madison, on Thomas Jefferson, on Benjamin Franklin, on George Washington, on the founders of this constitutional republic who knew that we were a nation of communities and who knew we wanted to escape the same problems that we faced when we were being run by King George III. That's what happened in 1994. That's why we're so independent. We are not beholden to the party. We are not beholden to PACs. We are beholden to those people who elected us. And those people elected us because we talked about the Constitution. And I think during the second government shutdown when when the sweat was pouring down everybody's faces when things were going as bad as we thought they could ever go that's when i was truly excited about being where i was because we we stood side by side and at least 40 to 45 of the 73 went and told the leadership we don't care whether we're reelected or not we came here to do things And if you like it, fine. If you don't like it, fine. We're going to stay the course. Now, whether or not we win this victory in the next six months or eight months or 12 months doesn't really matter because we've done something more important than just pass a few bills. We have entirely reframed the debate. Entirely. When you have the President of the United States, the torch carrier, for the liberal wing of the Democratic Party get up at the State of the Union address and say, the era of big government is over. (laughs) You know, my friends, that the debate has been changed forever. Now, Bill Clinton, if nothing else, is a product of polls and pollsters and pundits. And you know what signals they're getting back despite all the rhetoric, despite all the things that Bill Clinton is having Dan Rather and everybody else say? The polls that he's getting back are telling him that Americans no longer believe that the federal government can micromanage every social problem, and they want their country back, and they want their government back. And Bill Clinton is getting that message in the polls, and he's going to continue to get the message because Americans are finished with a social experimentation through their federal government. You know, back in April, something happened that few people uh, really paid attention to. I don't think it got much press. But the Supreme Court issued a decision. It was the Lopez decision. And it was the first time since 1937 that the Supreme Court applied the brakes to the use of the Interstate Commerce Clause to expand the power of Congress. You know, that's what, of course, uh, Franklin Roosevelt did back in the 1930s. He was trying to pass the New Deal legislation. He couldn't get it passed. He threatened to pack the court, the Supreme Court, basically backed down and started approving all of these unconstitutional new deal programs saying that it related interstate commerce so we could go ahead and pass it well from 1937 to 1995 the supreme court continued to bow down to this pressure finally in april of 1995 the supreme court said enough and drew a line and let me tell you something a lot of people are talking about this presidential race right now, and how important this presidential race is, for the variety of reasons uh, that 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 it's so important. Let me tell you, the most important phase of this presidential contest, for me, is finding out which candidate will elect Supreme Court justices who understand the limitations of Congress, who understand the limitations. Uh, that the Constitution gave our federal government and who understands what the Tenth Amendment means and how to apply it. That's why this battle is so important. We are starting to make headway in the Supreme Court. We will lose that headway if we don't get a president in that will continue, that that will start naming chief ju- justices that'll make a difference. Uh, we, we've gone over some of the things that that Overview. Let's talk specifics for a second, because I know there have been a lot of things happening, a lot of specifics happening that people are concerned with. But let's look again, look at the big picture for a second and start with a good litmus test on the Department of Education. Now, when I campaigned early, early on in 1994, I had an opponent who was a moderate Republican, uh, and, and she was, had all the standard answers that I'm sure she, she listened to on those tapes that the Republican Party sent out to her. <laughs> and they asked, what would you do to help increase uh, test scores, that, to help our children in education? She gave the standard answer. Well, I believe we somehow need to reconnect the student with a parent with a classroom, blah, 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 and we can do it by having the Department of Education doing ABCD. I mean, it's, again, just very nebulous, uh, generalized thinking my response is very simple I said we need to abolish the Department of Education <laughs> now I, I had people applause just like that for about 10 times before she finally said to me at one of our debates you know Joe if you go up to Congress you won't be able to find one person in Washington, D.C. that will go along with you in a plan to abolish the Department of Education. Well, let me report to you right now that of those 73 freshmen I talked about, 55 have signed on to our plan to abolish the Department of Education, 100, 125 members throughout Congress have co-sponsored that legislation and every member of the Republican leadership has signed onto the bill except for Speaker Gingrich. We're still working on him. But our plan is abolish the Department of Education in one year and then do something very radical. Send the money and send the authority back to the states, back to the communities back to the local school boards, back to the principals, back to the teachers, and back to the parents. And we have, we abolish it in one year, we do the block grants for the governors for two additional years, and we only have one federal rule, one string that's attached, and it's this. Two percent of the money can go for overhead only. The other 98% has to go straight into the classroom. Let me speak briefly beyond uh, talking about the freshman classes we've been talking about. You know, George Wallace back in the 60s said there's not a dime's worth of difference between Democrats and Republicans. Now, while that may have been true before we got there, <laughs> you, know, everybody says, you know, everybody says that, of course. But let me tell you, there are some very stark differences. And I, I want to start with talking about the man who makes tax policy, basically, for Congress now. And he's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, And, of course, that's Bill Archer from Texas. Bill Archer replaced Dan Rostenkowski, the tax collector for the welfare state. Now, you know where Dan Rostenkowski stood. Let me tell you what Bill Archer is proposing. He wants to abolish the IRS, get rid of... (laughs) get rid of the income tax system, repeal the 16th Amendment, and move forward with a national consumption tax, with a sales tax. Now, we don't know the details. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out in the press. But I'll tell you one thing that I do know, there is a dime's worth of difference between this year's Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and last year's chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. There's a big difference. I've heard some people uh, have some concerns about uh, Army. But let me tell you, Army right now is pushing to get rid of farm subsidies where we continue to pay farmers not to plant crops. Let me tell you, that's just as wrong as paying uh, a single mother not to work. We need to strike out against corporate welfare, be it corporate welfare in the Department of Agriculture, our farm subsidies, our our giveaways to oil companies. It it doesn't matter. Basically, read the 10th Amendment. Now, how am I doing on time? Am I coming up on 30 minutes? Okay. See, I keep going. Okay, I'm going to talk briefly about two other things. I'll, I'll speed up a little bit. I want to talk briefly about the UN bill. And let me tell you something. I was besieged by the news media after we dropped this U.N. bill. Let me tell you how it usually works in Congress. You drop a bill, and you want to get as much publicity as possible because you want to get pressure on other members to co-sponsor the bill. But what we did, it was the 50th anniversary of the formation of the United Nations. We wanted to drop the bill on U.N. day. We were not ready for a big Uh, offensive, public relations offensive, so I told my staff, I want you guys to work as hard as you can, get this thing airtight, make it work, I want to drop it on October 24th, sort of send a shot across the bow, ruin the birthday party, and then, (laughs) then after the budget deliberations are over, uh, in the spring, that's when we'll start pushing it. Well, we dropped the bill, and by that evening, I had calls from the Washington Post, Nightline, the New York Times, I mean every major publication, every, every major uh, uh, media outlet wanted to talk to us about it. I still don't know how they found out about it. Now let me tell you something. Your network also, obviously, and this underground network that I've talked about also is having a great impact because we haven't had time really to even send out a dear colleague letter because everybody's mind is focused on budget deliberations. But I'll have somebody come up to me nervously and say, oh, Joe, can you put me on that bill? <laughs> I said, McManus has been talking to him. Or somebody out there has been talking to him. And, and we are actually, we've gotten uh, Tom DeLay signed onto the bill. Of course, he also is the sponsor of the Michael New uh, legislation. Uh, he is the, he's the whip, <laughs> who, is, who is the uh, number uh, three Republican in the House. Uh, we have Don Young, who's uh, also a chairman, and several others that have signed onto the bill. The plan is to get us out of the United Nations. Now, it, it's not because we're xenophobic. It's not because we're knuckle-dragging isolationists, as they <laughs> like to portray many of us. Right? But it's because we read our Constitution, and we understand that our founding fathers believed we needed to be focused on protecting our shores and being interested in protecting American interests. Now, let me tell you something, and to follow up on something that was said earlier, it doesn't mean that we're cold-hearted, that we're bigots, that we're isolationists, that we're xenophobic, because we're doing what our Founding Fathers told us we need to do. It is our mission, it is our responsibility to be concerned, first and foremost, with protecting the shores of this country and protecting American interests. And when Bob Dornan and I, when Bob Dornan and I uh, drafted a bill to defund the Bosnian operation, we were besieged by those that said that we were cold-hearted and didn't care. But let me tell you, that is a soft-headed approach that got our troops killed in Somalia, got our troops killed at the end of the Vietnamese War, and are getting our troops killed in Bosnia. And this is how it works. Instead of focusing on what the Constitution tells us to focus on, we focus on what Dan Rather puts on CBS News, and we see that there are people starving in Somalia. So the president gets together and he says, we can't let this go on. We need to send our troops to Somalia. Okay, great. We send our troops to Somalia because we're responding to an emotional impulse that these images on TV get, it, get us into. But then what happens? What happens three months later, six months later? What images are we seeing? We're seeing the burned bodies of Americans drug through the streets of Mogadishu, and then what happens? That same knee-jerk reaction, that emotional tug, that undisciplined approach to foreign policy that got us into Somalia gets us out. And at what cost? Well, $3 billion and and 29 lives. Now, for anybody to look at Bosnia and to look at a civil war that's been raging for over 500 years, a three-sided civil war at that, and to say that there is a direct American interest, a vital American interest in sending troops over to Bosnia for young Americans to die simply has a distorted view of history. I don't care. I don't care what happened in 1914. I don't care if the Archduke was shot and there was an entanglement of alliances that led to World War I. That was the reality of 1914, not the reality of 1996. And I don't care if in 1945 the countries of the world came together with the best of intentions, if we want to give them the presumption of innocence, with the best of intentions to form an organization that would bring peace to the world, even if they believed that was the reality in 1945 That is not the reality in 1996. The reality is, the reality is that Americans have lost their way. American foreign policy leaders have been drawn into a trap. And they are not the ones who are dying. Their sons are not the ones that are dying. It's American kids across the country are dying because they're expanding this social experimentation outside of our borders and across the country and it's got to stop. And it will stop. You know, and, and, and I, I tell people, Americans have always been leaders. We've been, we, we, have, we have led this century, it's been the American century. You know, we can let it go. We can let the U.N. go. We need to look forward to the 21st century, not to 1945. Because let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, the world is a more dangerous place today than it has ever been at any time in America's history. You look at what's happening in China. You look at the abandonment of our ally, Taiwan. You look at Congress and the President continuing to bow down to what Bill Clinton himself called in 1992 the Butchers of Beijing. Those aren't my words. Those aren't an isolationist's word. Those were Bill Clinton's words. Remember, he attacked George Bush. And then after he got elected, he went to the White House and talked to George Bush. And they went to talk to him about the Butchers of Beijing. And three hours afterward, he came out and he had seen the light. <laughs> we can deal constructively with Communist China, Bill said. You know, I think what George Bush did was he started adding up the dollar signs for Bill Clinton. And what happened last year when we were debating whether to extend an MFN to China again, despite what they've been doing for the past 10 years, despite what they've been doing since 1949, and I understand we were talking before. Now it's official. The Guinness World Book of Records says that Chairman Mao and Joe and Lai were the two greatest butchers in the history of this world, butchered over 60 million people. And yet, because McDonald's, because other corporations, international corporations, come in and lobby Congress and say it's really important to extend MFN. It's really important. It means American jobs. Congress bows down and extends it. We did it last year. There are only four of us that voted against extending MFN. Thunderbird and I were two of them. I don't remember the other two, but I'll tell you something. There are going to be a lot more this year because they're not going to sneak the issue up on us when we get back, I'm working with Frank Wolf and David Funderburg. We're going to be extremely vocal, and we're going to chain people into voting no for China's extending MFN, and we need to send a, a shot across their bow that we're not going to stand for, for their expansion into Taiwan. Taiwan is our ally, and Bill Clinton needs to realize that. Let me tell you, the fight will go on. We may not win it with Bill Clinton in the White House, but we will continue to fight. We will continue to elect constitutional conservatives. We will retake America, and we will return this country to what our founding fathers intended to be, a nation of communities, a nation of families, and a nation of individuals. It's about freedom, and we're going to win. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Congressman Joe Scarborough. It's a pleasure and privilege. We're so glad to have you here with us. Thanks.